What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Christmas Day, 2010. A couple was walking their dog along a remote road in Clifton, an inner suburb of the English port city of Bristol, when they happened upon a startling discovery. It was the body of a 25-year-old woman named Joanna Yates. She had been missing for eight days. When Joanna Yates' body was discovered, it was partially covered in snow, and she is partially undressed. She is found to have 43 injuries focused on the head and neck. Her ultimate cause of death is manual strangulation. 32-year-old Dutch engineer Vincent Tabak, who was obsessed with violent pornography and rough sex, would soon be identified as Joanna's killer. He would watch at length pornography that was dedicated to the proposition of binding women, torturing women, humiliating women. After Joanna rejected his advances, Tabak strangled the young woman in her own apartment, then dumped her body three miles away from where they both lived. The disappearance of Joanna Yates became front page news very quickly, and everybody was thinking of this woman who was missing from her family at such an important time of year. A nationwide hunt for the missing woman had come to a tragic end, and the prime murder suspect was Joanna's landlord and neighbor, Christopher Jeffries. When you're confronted with police telling you that you're under arrest on suspicion of murder, the shock is so great that really it's um, a question of feeling numb. But the police had arrested the wrong neighbor. But he takes one life in a terrible way and then proceeds to try and convince the world that he could not possibly have had anything to do with it. His own family, his girlfriend, his girlfriend's family were absolutely convinced that he was innocent. So he was able to, to maintain this facade of normality, this idea that he was this gentle giant, this innocent person. And I think when you can fool those closest to you, you're potentially a very dangerous person. This is What Makes a Killer, a series that chronicles the lives and crimes of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Vincent Tabak. Vincent Tabak was born in the Netherlands on February 10, 1978. He grew up the youngest of five children in the town of Uden. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley and journalist Jeffrey Wansel discussed Tabak's upbringing. His parents were quite a bit older than the parents of his peers, and he had quite a solitary upbringing. And his relationships with his fellow pupils at school, the kids in the community, they weren't that great. So he was a bit of a loner. He wasn't desperately gregarious. He kept himself to himself. He didn't play with other children. He was kind of reserved, but he was undoubtedly clever. Forensic psychologist Rex Bieber delves into Tabak's inability to connect with his peers. Tabak came from a, a good, caring family. The only thing that we know about him psychologically as a child was he was a bit of a loner, and that is very common for people who have sexual pathology, especially 
if it's what I would call secretive sexual pathology. So no indications of a traumatic event being the cause of his disturbance. The thing is, he was developing quite quickly intellectually. He did incredibly well in school. But those social skills that we all have to develop, he wasn't developing those as quickly as he was developing his aptitude for academic subjects. So there was something that was a little bit odd about him. As he continued to achieve academic success, 18-year-old Tabak enrolled in the prestigious Eindhoven University of Technology to study architecture, building, and planning. This is where he first encountered the city's red light district. Well, when Tabak was at university, he lived in an area opposite the red light district. I think there was a fascination that he had with these women because he hadn't really been exposed to intimate relationships. He was quite socially stunted in terms of his development. Tabak flourished and eventually received his PhD. But even in his late 20s, Tabak struggled to build relationships, particularly with those of the opposite sex. He certainly found relationships with women very difficult. I think he saw women as objects and had done so from quite an early age. In 2007, while studying for his PhD, Tabak found work at Barrow Happold, an engineering company in Bath, England. I think Tabak's first real job was a, a learning experience for him. So he's spending time with, with people who perhaps haven't had the, the same experience that he has um, being at university for nearly a decade, living a rather kind of solitary life. He's being exposed to, to new people, new behaviours, and he's looking at how people behave in social situations. And because he's very bright, he's picking up on this. He's realising what's appropriate, what's not appropriate in particular circumstances. And he's starting to mirror the behavior of other people. In November 2008, Tabak met a woman and they began dating. The couple met through The Guardian's online dating site. Perhaps predictable in a way, given the fact that Tabak was very reserved when it came to women. Now, bear in mind that he's 30 at this point, so his development is a little bit behind what would be considered normal and average. And he meets his first girlfriend online, and that for me is actually quite interesting because you don't have that same kind of social pressure that you do in a face-to-face -face environment. After barely seven months, the pair decided to live together. In June 2009, the couple relocated to Clifton, a posh hilltop neighborhood in Bristol. They rented a home from a retired English teacher, Christopher Jeffries. Christopher recalls his first encounter with Tabak. He was physically quite tall and imposing, but in manner, comparatively gentle and fairly deferential, um, quite reserved. He always struck me and I think other people in the building as very, very pleasant, very respectful um, in his manner. Life for Tabak was going well. He had secured a reputable job, he was in a stable relationship, and had settled into a new city. He lived in a delightful part of town. He had a very good job and he was on his way up. He had a good social life, he vacationed. But the 31-year-old engineer was hiding something sinister. He was leading a double life. While away on business trips, Tabak was interested in women soliciting sex. And there were records of him looking up the local sex trade, looking up escorts, looking up sex workers. So this was, was something that, that he would indulge in. 
So this is a person who has lived in the world, at least in his fantasy, of sexual domination. Tabak was also a regular consumer of online hardcore pornography. A man who took a great interest in escort agencies, in pornographic websites, some of them involving the abduction, torture of women, and indeed some of the others involving the abuse of children. I think that there is very often that connection made between consuming violent pornography and being a sexual predator and being a violent individual. But I think for Tabak, this didn't cause his violent behaviour. I think when he was consuming this violent pornography, it simply reinforced these existing values and attitudes and beliefs that he had about women. So what we have is a hidden man. We have the man on the surface who goes to Bristol and gets on the train to Bath and comes home in a steady relationship. And you have the secret tabak, the tabak who is hidden beneath the surface, who exists on the web and exists in front of his computers. Here is the tabak that is about to come out, the genie in the bottle, if you prefer, in the twilight world in which his girlfriend knows nothing about. On October 25th, 2010, another young couple rented a garden-level apartment from Christopher Jeffries. Now, this flat was located in the same house as the flat occupied by Vincent Tabak and his girlfriend. The new tenants were 25-year-old Joanna Yates and her 27-year-old boyfriend, Greg. Both were architects and worked at the same firm in Bristol. They were living together for the, for the first time. Um, they were obviously very much in love with each other. Joanna Yates was a very clever, very ambitious woman, and she was working as a, a landscape architect, and her, her work took her to Bristol. Joe struck me as being a slightly nervous young woman. Um, she was very, very attractive, again, very pleasant to deal with, but a little bit nervous in manner. She was the sort of person, for example, if I had to go and speak to her, would hesitate for a little before deciding whether or not to invite me in. Despite being neighbours, Tabak and Joanna Yates never interacted. Now, I believe that Tabak was fascinated by his next-door neighbour and increasingly fascinated by her. She represented the figure that he'd seen on the net. He would like to have some kind of sexual relationship with her. She, however, was entirely unaware of his interest in her. On November 6th, Tabak went on a business trip to America. And again, he was browsing escort websites. So he's playing the role of the committed partner, the devoted boyfriend at home. And then there's this other side to him, the real side to him, that comes out when he's on his own and he doesn't have those controls over his behavior. Unable to rein in his sexual appetite, Tabak made contact with an escort. He goes to a motel in St. Louis Obispo, about 150 miles north of Los Angeles, and hires a, a girl and pays her $200. Again, he's ostensibly working, and yet, in that twilight world that he inhabited, he's making contacts with escorts, prostitutes. I would say that Tabak had an obsession with what sex represented. I think for him, it represented power, it represented control, it represented an opportunity for, for him to, to see himself as, as important because these women were there to serve him. And I think that's a value that he continued to develop over many years. The 11th of December in 2010, 
Tabak comes back from California. Back to his girlfriend. On the surface, nothing has altered one iota, except something has. Tabak's secret addiction to violent pornography and sex was escalating by the day. I think that Tabak was essentially a bomb waiting to go off, a bomb fueled by an addiction to pornography, not fueled by alcohol or drugs, but simply the addictions of pornography, which I've always believed is potentially every bit as dangerous. Across the hall, new tenants, Joanna Yates and her boyfriend Greg, were settled into their new home, had made new friends, and were preparing for the holidays. Reporter Claire Hayhurst shares more. During the day of December the 17th, Jo had gone out to lunch with her boyfriend Greg. He was going away to Sheffield for the weekend. Greg kissed Joanna goodbye and then made his way to northern England to visit family, leaving Joanna home alone. I gather she had told friends that she was a little bit nervous about spending the weekend on her own uh, without Greg, and I think she had been intending to do some cooking or some baking in preparation for Christmas. Coincidentally, Tabak's girlfriend tells Vincent Tabak that she's going to be going to a works party and it won't finish until the early hours of the following morning. Tabak agreed to pick up his girlfriend after the party. At about 6 p.m., his neighbor Joanna left work to meet some friends for drinks. Perfectly innocently, Joanna goes out for a drink with some friends in the Ram pub in Bristol. She was there for about two hours and she then made her way back up to Clifton where she lived. The last sighting of her is from some CCTV footage from a pub just 600 yards from her home and it shows her walking home alone. Joanna arrived home around 8.37. Her neighbor, Vincent Tabak, was home alone and decided to pay her a visit. I presume she opened the door willingly and there was her neighbor, though they were not by any means friends. Now, at some point during this evening, Tabak enters her flat. We're never gonna know exactly what happened here, but it's likely that the entry wasn't forced. Joanna probably let him in. He was one of her neighbors. She was a trusting individual. It was to prove a terrible mistake. Once inside, Tabak made sexual advances. After being rejected by Joanna, Tabak, fueled by anger, attacked the 25-year-old. At about 10 to 9 that evening, a couple attending a party near Joe's flat in Canning Road in Bristol heard a woman scream twice. Now those screams almost certainly came from Joanna Yates. As Joanna tried to fight back, Tabak placed his hands around her neck and started to choke her. Most people know what it feels like to choke on something, to find it difficult to breathe. For that situation to be suddenly inflicted on you out of the blue by another human being would be terrifying, confusing, distressing. And she ends up with over 40 injuries to her body. It's a horrifying, horrifying thought that a young woman just back from celebrating the coming of Christmas with her friends should be snuffed out by this loner next door who is uh, hiding another individual, hiding Mr. Hyde in the plain sight of Dr. Jekyll. 
and literally in one fell swoop, he's wiped out the life of, of this individual who had so much hope and so much promise. Shortly after killing Joanna, Tabak sent his girlfriend a text message. He then went about covering up the murder in a seemingly calm and calculated fashion. He carries, and this must have taken quite a considerable effort, he carries the body of Joanna Yates out and puts it into the boot of his Renault Megane car. He sets about constructing an alibi for himself. So he drives to a, a local Asda supermarket where I think he knows he's going to be seen on CCTV. CCTV footage captured Tabak wandering around the supermarket. With Joanna's body still in the trunk of his car, Tabak casually sent his girlfriend another text message at 10.30. Most people, when they commit murder, are absolutely horrified by what they've done. They are not able to function normally whatsoever. But Vincent Tabak is, is just something altogether different. At some point later that evening, he drives the car about three miles to a lane in Feyland. He parks beside a, a stone wall guarding a quarry. He opens the boot, gets Joanna's body out. He lifts her out and tries to throw her over the wall, but he finds he can't quite manage it. So in the end, he dumps her on the roadside, covers her with leaves and snow. The way he goes about covering up this murder is so systematic. He's literally going through the, the problem and the solution process. He's just got absolutely no regard for her as a human being. Once home, Tabak sat down at his computer. He began almost immediately doing two things, watching more pornography, much of it related and similar to what he perpetrated that night, and doing legal research and he starts looking up sentences for murder versus manslaughter. Which sentence is going to be more severe? What's the difference between the two? So he's very much concerned for himself at this point in time. He was already beginning to plot out, if he was caught, how he would twist the facts in order to make it a manslaughter. He researched the temperature and rate of body decomposition. In short, he did everything conceivable to plan for an escape because he was aware that getting caught was a real possibility. Meanwhile, Joanna's boyfriend, Greg, tried to reach her by phone and text, but got no answer. Just after 1.30 a.m., Tabak continued to play the role of the doting boyfriend and picked up his girlfriend from her work Christmas party. What she doesn't know and can't know is that he'd taken the life of their next-door neighbor, Joe Yates. With several unanswered messages and calls, Joanna's boyfriend anxiously drove back to Bristol on the evening of December 19th, only to find she had vanished. But Joanna's keys, purse, mobile phone, they're all there. Put yourself in his shoes. You walk in expecting to see your girlfriend, and the place is empty. It must have been a most dreadful shock. Greg called Joanna's parents, but they had no idea where she was. Greg then dialed 999. And at 4.15 a.m., Greg and a police officer knocked on Tabak's door, asking if he had seen Joanna. Tabak brushes it off. No idea. Haven't seen her. His girlfriend, of course, knows nothing at all because she wasn't there. With no leads, a missing persons report was launched nearly three days after Joanna's disappearance. Vincent Tabak was now hiding in plain sight. In the days after Tabak committed the murder, looking at his internet history is, is quite interesting. 
He was continuing to watch violent pornography. He was following developments in the Joanna Yates missing person case. So he wants to stay on top of what's happening because for Tabak, staying in control is very important to him. He needs to know exactly what's going on. Four days after Joanna went missing, her parents made a public plea for her safe return. When I got to the first press conference, I remember her family coming in the room as well as her boyfriend, Greg, and it immediately struck me just how distraught and upset they were. Over the next few days, police continued to search her home, and on December 23rd, they searched the other apartments in the building, including Vincent Tabak's. But came up empty-handed. There were fairly detailed searches of the gardens around the, the property, all the flats. In the end, sniffer dogs were brought in um, to see if they could um, find any traces of anything that uh, might be connected with Joe. The search to find Joanna's killer became one of the largest police operations in Bristol. Over 100 hours of surveillance footage was examined, and nearly 300 tons of garbage near Joanna's apartment was seized. A national newspaper even offered a reward of 50,000 pounds. But still, there were no leads. Meanwhile, Tabak continued flying under the radar, even spending time with his girlfriend's parents in Cambridge. On Christmas Eve, the police contacted Tabak once again. They wanted to know where he was on the night of Joanna's disappearance. He claimed to be home all evening. The media pressure was mounting, and authorities still had no clues about Joanna's disappearance. I remember the parents of Jo Yates, I think her dad, said how she loved Christmas. I know the feeling at the time across the country, probably across the world, was people were just willing her to come home, to be reunited with her family in time for Christmas. That wasn't meant to be. At around 9 a.m. on Christmas Day, two dog walkers found a body nearly three miles from Joanna's home. Joanna's body is discovered in its shallow grave of leaves and twigs and snow in the lane. The police then turned their attention to the night of Joanna's disappearance. With no signs of forced entry into the apartment, police were certain that Joanna knew her killer and assumed it had to be her landlord, Christopher Jeffries. I had gone away to spend Christmas with one of my cousins. As I was on my way back to Bristol, the following morning, there was a loud knock on the door of my flat with the police saying that they needed to talk to me. When you're confronted with police at seven o'clock in the morning telling you that you're under arrest on suspicion of the murder of um, one of your tenants. The shock is so great that really it's a question of feeling numb. There isn't, I think, any opportunity to, to feel anything else. Christopher was arrested five days after Joanna's body was found, and the news broke quickly. 
People were very, very quick to assume that Christopher Jeffries was guilty. This really was trial by media, and the outcome was decided very, very quickly. And this guy had his reputation absolutely ruined, literally overnight. People had decided that this was what a murderer looked like. And when that has been put out there, when the public have kind of got on board with that, it's very, very difficult to, to gain your reputation back. Vincent Tabak who had flown to the Netherlands to spend the new year with his family, was watching the news with great curiosity. It seemed he had gotten away with murder. But he was about to make a vital mistake. Well, Vincent Tabak, after Christopher Jeffries was arrested, saw a narrative developing. He saw that Christopher Jeffries had been labelled as a murderer. And he literally could not help himself. He wanted to, to help this storyline along. So he called the police and he said, well, yeah, actually, I remember now that my landlord was out and about on the evening that Joanna Yates disappeared. And I saw that his car was parked the other way round the next morning and, and wasn't that strange. Keen to hear his version of events, on December 31st, a detective flew to Amsterdam to speak to him. But things didn't go as Tabak had hoped. The detective arrives at the hotel and spends around six hours with Tabak, and she becomes very, very suspicious of him because he's very curious about the investigation. He wants to know an awful lot about it, especially when it comes to the forensic tests that have been carried out. And she cottons on to the fact that he's taking this information and he's then using it in, in particular ways. So he starts to give a slightly different version of his story. He starts to say, well, actually, I didn't just go out once on the evening that Joanna disappeared. I I went out twice. I went out to Asda, and then I went out to take pictures of the snow. And she thinks that this is this is quite bizarre. And, and he's also starting to, to say, oh, I may have been inside Joanna Yates' flat at some point. And he'd never said this before. She becomes convinced that there is far more to this and to Tabak than meets the eye. And crucially, she asks him if she can take a DNA swab. This was a very experienced detective. She knew exactly what was going on here. And she got DNA and she got fingerprints from him. And he gave those willingly, um, but he, he seemed a little bit concerned. Uh, and I think this did seal his fate. On January 1st, 2011, Christopher Jeffries was released on bail. The following day, an anxious Tabak returned to Bristol. Now, with his DNA on file, it was only a matter of time before police traced the results back to him. By January 20th, investigators had gathered enough evidence to arrest Vincent Tabak for the murder of Joanna Yates. Vincent Tabak's DNA was found on Joanna Yates's body and traces of her blood were found in his car. So this is very, very compelling evidence. Now, Tabak's reaction to this when he was arrested was to basically construct himself as the victim and say, these forensic scientists, they're, they're all corrupt. They've been taking bribes. They've, they've set me up here. Christopher Jeffries has been wrongly accused. Now I've been wrongly accused as well. He had convinced his girlfriend and his girlfriend's family that he was completely innocent to the extent that they set up a fund to pay for his defense. Here was this gentle giant, this, this intellectual, quiet, introspective guy who, who wouldn't hurt a fly. With Tabak now in custody, the police searched his apartment and seized his four computers. They find the pornography. They find the bound women. They find women being bundled into the boot of the car. 
Some of the images found on Tabak's computer resembled Joanna Yates and the way in which her body was found. One in particular of the pornographic sites he visited contained an image of a blonde-haired woman pulling up her top to expose her breasts. Now, chilling though it may sound, Joanna's top had been lifted up and part of her right breast exposed, exactly like the website that Tabak had uh, accessed. On January 21st, Vincent Tabak was charged with the murder of Joanna Yates. He almost had everyone fooled, including the man he'd tried to frame. I was absolutely astonished. My first reaction was that probably the police were again grasping at straws and here was somebody else who would turn out to be entirely innocent because certainly absolutely nothing in his manner, in his behaviour, would lead me to have any inkling of suspicion that he might be capable of that in the slightest. Tabak was sent to Bristol Prison, then Long Larton in Worcestershire while awaiting trial. By now, his girlfriend had ditched him. Realising he was on his own, Vincent Tabak gave a chilling confession to a prison chaplain 19 days after his arrest. Now, he hasn't suddenly grown a conscience overnight. He's had a couple of weeks inside. He's become aware of the strength of the evidence against him. He realizes that he needs to change his version of the story to secure the best possible outcome for himself. So he, he admits that, that he's responsible for her death. But he doesn't admit to murder. He says this was manslaughter. And he starts to twist the story. So he says, she was flirting with me. She was coming on to me. Poor me, I'm the victim. And she freaked out when I tried to kiss her and I just reacted. I couldn't help it. The original suspect, Christopher Jeffries, was released from police bail on March 4th and cleared of all charges about two months after his original arrest. On May 5th, Vincent Tabak admitted to the manslaughter of Joanna Yates in court, but denied the charge of murder. Tabak's trial took place on October 4th, 2011, at Bristol Crown Court. During the course of his testimony, Tabak gave his version of events. Vincent Tabak told Bristol Crown Court that he had gone into Joe's flat after spotting her through the window. She'd apparently had her blind up. He said they'd both chatted about the fact that their partners were away and they were bored. He claims that Joanna came on to him. She'd been leading him on. She'd been encouraging him. She'd been flirting with him. And that, that he'd gone to kind of follow up on that. And he said that Joe then made a flirty comment about her cat. And he made a pass at her. He grabbed her and tried to kiss her. And he said it was then that she started to scream loudly. And he asked her to stop and she wouldn't. And he said he then put his hands around her throat and, and started to strangle her in, in an attempt to control her. Um, and he said that suddenly, after about 20 seconds, she had gone limp and fallen to the ground. There was a moment in the trial that I think will stay with everybody in that courtroom for a long period of time. Vincent Tabak's defence barrister asked him to act out effectively the period of time in which he'd spent strangling Joe. And I remember us counting together those 20 seconds and it feeling like an awfully long time. Tabak's defence was that it was manslaughter, not murder, to inflict 
43 injuries upon a person takes time, takes effort. It is physically demanding. And the length of time that pressure has to be applied to the neck after a person is unconscious, you have minutes to realize that the person is not responding, but yet tobacco is maintaining that pressure long after it would be necessary just to subdue somebody. To suggest that he wasn't intending for her to end up dead is just entirely implausible. The notion that he would think a jury would be naive enough to believe that story while the autopsy indicated that she had 43 wounds on her body, most of which around her neck, would tell anyone this was a strangulation. On October 28th, after four days of deliberation, the jury found Vincent Tabak guilty of murdering Joanna Yates. In sentencing him, Mr. Justice Field said, I think there is a sexual element to this killing. In my view, you are very dangerous. In my opinion, you are a thoroughly deceitful, dishonest and manipulative. And I think those words are very helpful to describe Vincent Tabak. Tabak was given a life sentence with a minimum of 20 years. In addition to the charge of murder, in March 2015, Tabak was charged with possessing over 140 indecent images of children, and 10 months were added to his sentence. He remains in HM Prison, Longlarton. Vincent Tabak is somebody who is duplicitous. He is cold and he's calculating and he's incredibly narcissistic. It's about me, myself and I. I think what I can say for sure is that he would definitely have gone on to harm other people. It's all about pursuing his own desires and his own wants. If he had gotten away with this, then there would have been absolutely no impetus on him to change his behaviour, to address those underlying values and attitudes and beliefs. He still would have been misogynistic. He still would have been violent and entitled, and somebody would have been harmed by him. He had every opportunity in life, and he forsake that and destroyed his life, Yates's life, her boyfriend's life, and the life of his own girlfriend. He only takes one life but he takes it in a a terrible way and then proceeds to try and convince the world that uh, he could not possibly have had anything to do with it. It is an act of gross depravity. What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by Audio Boom's Blair Payton, Lauren Vogel, Pam Burrows, and Karen Bevan. Production for Woodcut provided by Andy Papadopoulos, Jenny Day, and Kula Anastasi. Original music by Ben Kregi. Executive producer for Woodcut is Kate Beale, and for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. on the next episode of What Makes a Killer. September 1991, Guilford, Connecticut. Early Sunday evening, a mysterious man visited the home of Christine Brendel and was told her brother, Ernest, and his family had been kidnapped and held for ransom by the mafia. I didn't quite know what to make of it. He had Ernie's car. 
and he opened the trunk, was full of blood. The man at the door was 42-year-old Christopher Hightower, a pathological liar and a killer. He claimed to need $75,000 in order to release the family, but in reality, he had murdered them. He would stop at, at nothing to get what he wanted. It didn't matter who he hurt. It didn't matter who he conned. Hightower had murdered his friend Ernest, strangled his wife Alice, then drugged their eight-year-old daughter Emily and dumped her in a shallow grave. There was evidence that she was buried alive. That's a monster. That's a monster. 